This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Kirsten Ellsworth, host for the New Books Network channel in art, and I'm very excited today to have Eldana Jonaitis, who is the author of The Art of the Northwest Coast in its second edition, which is very exciting, published just in the last couple months, 2021 by the Bill Holmes Center for the Study of Northwest Native Art and the Burke Museum in Seattle in association with the University of Washington Press in Seattle. Aldona, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast and ask you what motivated you to bring out a second edition of the book. (laughs) Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to this uh, wonderful program, and I look forward to our conversation. The reason I'm 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 a I've been working for 50 years on the art of the Northwest Coast, which is the Native people from northern Washington State on the coast all the way to the Panhandle of Alaska, and in 2006, I there was no survey of Northwest Coast Native art uh, that was not quite old. And so I decided to write a survey book. And that came out in 2006. Since that time, there have been so many interesting new developments in the study of Northwest Coast art that um, the editors at Washington Press and I thought it would be very, very good idea to meet for me to add one full new chapter and then I uh, put a lot of new information in the uh, another chapter directly preceding chapter to the final one I notice in the book that you also indicated you put or you addressed maybe more contemporary art as well as and I thought your word was very useful customary art in the new edition <laughs> Oh, customary. Let me just briefly explain that. It used to be called traditional. You know, you had traditional art, which looked like the art of in the Northwest Coast, the art of the 19th century. Then you have 
um, contemporary art, which is in some way art being made today and uh, some more innovative art, some more avant-garde art. Well, the term traditional is not the most positive term for some indigenous people because traditional implies a static a static existence in a prehistoric time that's traditional things that were culturally relevant before colonization and native people that's what some people interpret the term traditional as other people have a different notion but um and then so Native people, many Native people thought that the word traditional denies them their history. So that's one point. And they, the Maori of New Zealand decided that, because they have a very similar situation, they decided that they would use the word customary as opposed to traditional. And a good number of Native American and Native Canadian artists pick that up. And so that's why I use the word contempt, um, customary. The other thing is when you use the word um, contemporary, everything being made today is contemporary because contemporary means today. And so I kind of divided the art. There are some artists from the uh, late 20th century to the present who are making art in the um, mode of previous kinds of art. It looks, it's very connected to the canons of the 19th century. And so that's what we call customary art, made today. The other kind of art is more, is innovative. And it's a kind of art that, as I said earlier, is very original take some elements from the past and then changes it, uh, changes them into a new kind of creativity. And most, much of the time, the more innovative art goes beyond the cultural relevance of the group itself. In other words, much of this art um, is not only relevant to the beliefs of the people, the mores and worldviews of the people that the artist belongs to and what the artist is, is, is part of. Um, it goes beyond, it often deals with political issues and social issues. And so you're dealing with a more expansive kind of art. And so what I did in the, the very last chapter of the earlier edition, um, which stopped in 2006, I had a few, uh, at that point, there were a few more innovative kinds of artists, and I included them in that, in that last chapter. In this edition, I have a whole new last chapter that is solely concerned with the innovative material, the avant-garde material, the um, more universal material. And then I added other kinds of art to the previous chapter. So in the previous chapter, which is also, you know, art of the late 20th and 21st century, um, 
I took some of the pieces that I had spoken about in that chapter for the 2006 edition, put them in the second, the last chapter, and then included new, interesting, customary artists. So that's the difference between the two chapters at the end. This is so illuminating um, for readers when you read the book. Uh, I think that the terms we've just heard sort of defined make the book very much a 21st century text in that issues, as you mentioned, of hybridization, um, what's customary, what's traditional. The book really presents things in a way that makes nothing stick in a category, I guess is what I would say, or reduce something to a category that would limit the art. And with that said, I would like you to maybe give us a gloss of how an idea of a golden age or um, for Northwest, uh, excuse me, Northwest Coast art, or this idea of the untouched material has shaped uh, the presentation of the art from the Northwest Coast? Oh, that is such an interesting question. Um, first of all, the, the notion that there's a traditional time when the art was pristine, it was quote-unquote primitive, it was untouched by um, settlers or colonialists, colonists, that is actually, again, as I said before, it denies history. But even more relevant is there has never been a type of art in any society that has never changed. Every art has a trajectory. Every art has some kind of connection to others that change. And on the Northwest Coast, you had people, this is pre, you know, pre-colonization, you had one group influencing another group. You had trade between various ethnic groups. And so they changed in that way. Then when colonization started, the art began to, um, and it was, the Northwest Coast, it was the 19th century, the, the early to the late 19th century that the most, um, that the settlers began coming in to British Columbia and Alaska. And what happened is that there were materials like beads and uh, woven cloth that the the people, the artists picked up and said, this is really interesting and began incorporating that into their art styles and art works. They had metal tools so that they could carve more quickly. And that's why the totem pole became flourished so much once the the artists got metal tools because they could make them bigger and they could make more. And so um, the interactions between colonists and indigenous people led, and this is what we call intercultural, led to a burst of creativity. And the indigenous artists and their groups assimilated these new materials and transformed them into native artworks. Then when, and this was at a time that the interactions between, this is before 18, the 1880s, this was at a time that the relationships between indigenous people and settler and colonists 
were relatively, um, I mean, there was a lot of battles, but they were relatively civilized battles, if you can have that. Then when settlers began coming and then the native people got really oppressed. Their land was stolen. Missionaries told them they had to speak English. They had to go to schools. They couldn't practice their traditions. Canada made the, in the 1880s, Canada made the potlatch illegal. And so then the art of the indigenous people, the Northwest Coast native people, pretty much went, in some ways, went underground. The art that was relevant, like the masks for their rituals and carvings. And that went underground, and the artists began making tourist art, which the missionaries approved of. But that tourist art embodied a lot of their beliefs. And so all the art was in some, this was after the 1880s, all the art was in some way were expressions of resistance to colonization. You mentioned the term pot uh, potlatch. I'm not know if I'm saying that correctly. Will That's you explain? Right. Yeah. Okay. Will you explain a little bit more what that is, and also how that connects to the production of art, because that is a very interesting theme in your book. Yeah, potlatch. Um, it's a it's a word in in from Chinook, which is a a, lang- a Northwest Coast language that basically means to give, and it's a very it's a very complex ceremonialism, and there are different versions in all the groups on the Northwest Coast. But to make it as simple as possible, the Northwest Coast groups were hierarchical in the sense that they had chiefs and nobles and commoners and slaves. And there was no one paramount chief in any village, but you had these these rankings that were, you know, this family was very important and that family was very important. In order for the importance and the prestige of the family to be recognized by other groups, that family had to host what's known as a potlatch to guests. And in the potlatch, there was feasting and um, displays of masks and displays of art and a lot of dancing and a lot of singing. And at the end, and the, and the visit and the guests were witnesses to all these displays of um artworks and, and, and songs and so on that were owned by the family and embodied in those creative forms were the history and the prestige of the family. And then when at the end of the potlatch, the host gave the guests gifts. Um, some of them earlier on, they were piles of skins then they were lots of blankets and they were silver jewelry and even later there was cash. This is still going on today. I mean, there are a lot, there are potlatches all up and down the coast. And by accepting those gifts, the visitors acknowledged and validated the claims to status of the hosts. That's the simplest way I can put it. I mean, you can, you can read tomes and tomes on the potlatch and get a lot more information. But that's it. That's it kind of, you know, in a nutshell. Huh. It's a very useful explanation. And it does connect to your earlier point that um, 
maybe the potlatch became even more ceremonial, more um, dramatic, et cetera, as settlers came. And that did contribute to more art production. Um, and I, I think it's in, a good time. To, yes, please. In, in some groups, um, in, I mean, there's, there's different groups that had different reactions to settlers about the potlatch. In um, the Haida of, of Haida Gwaii in the Queen Charlotte Islands, the the Haida pretty much stopped potlatching because they were what's known as progressive, and they said, "Ah, we want to succeed in this new world. We will do. We will learn English. We will stop making totem poles. We will, we will, you know, so, uh, go to school and so on." So they actually took one route. They're very, very active culturally today. The Kwakwakiwak, who live in in the, in central British Columbia. Um, they were really resistant to the authorities. And even though the potlatch was illegal, they kept on potlatching. They made amazing artworks. Their potlatch flourished during the time, the worst times of oppression. The Clinket in Southeast Alaska were fairly quiet about their potlatches, but they continued throughout. So there were different responses to the, and Canada actually made it illegal, um, and United States didn't. It was just in the states, the um, the officials urged people not to potlatch anymore, but that didn't really happen. It didn't happen in in British Columbia either. Completely. This point of our conversation where you're talking about different groups and regions is also a reminder of the, I would say like the intricacy of your book, because not every group did respond the same way to anything. And why would we expect that anyway? Right. Um, Exactly. Exactly. I just, I thought that I think for readers, this will be fascinating to see um, what we might group as a monolithic kind of art all broken into different areas. And um, with that said, I feel that listeners might be interested to know about some of the art forms. There are so many, as you mentioned when we began, and maybe the gender demarcation of some of the production in (sighs) history anyway. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that because earlier on when you asked the question about why did I decide I wanted to do another edition. One of the real reasons, one of the many reasons, in addition to presenting the wealth of of new art that's been produced in the last 40 years, is that women's art on the Northwest Coast has been for years ignored. Um, in, in, in terms of art historians and anthropologists, it was not ignored in the in the communities. Women's art was very important in the communities, but because of basically sexism and and um, male orientation of the anthropologists and the art historians, they just discarded women's art. And so, one of the reasons I wanted to do this book was to enhance is was to expand the number of women's artworks that are in the book 
And so I, throughout the first, the first chapters before, you know, 1960, 1970, I included as many baskets and beadwork and textiles as I possibly could um, in order to show that women were producing a great deal of incredible art. Then in the, in the, in the let's just say the, mo the more modern period from, you know, 7080 to the present, I consciously tried to find, and I mean, I knew them, they're, they're great artists, women artists who both are, create customary work, got some weavers that are unbelievable. If you look at the pictures in the book, it's just dazzling what they do. And then the, um, in the last chapter, which is the more innovative artists, there are women who are addressing racism and sexism and oppression and colonization and settlement and, and, um, and, and those kinds of issues. So I tried to get as many women as women's artworks as possible into the book. And as a matter of fact, I even dedicated the book to women, um, mainly women native artists, but also women colleagues and women um, friends who have made this discipline into something much more egalitarian. So yeah, uh, women's art is is great, and and I, I, I hope that I hope that people can look through the book and just see what women have done. I'm not saying men haven't done great work; they have. Them. I mean, I, I I love the material, and I love the art, and the artists I know who are still living. I love them; They're fascinating people. Um, but but to have focus or to bring the readers attention to the vitality of women's art and the impressive history of it was another message that I wanted to communicate. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. And it is communicated so beautifully. I would like just to make a little pitch for the extremely <laughs> nice illustrations. And I know the, the hunt for copyright and the dedication you showed of finding the right pictures and... Um, I, I would like to ask you, and if you can't choose, that's fine. If you have a favorite form if from all your years of study, is there a form you like the most, a type of art? It's kind of like asking which of your children do you like the best. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, I love the question. It's a great question. I cannot answer it. Because yes, because even even the material that was made, of, I told talked about tourist art. 
um, a lot of uh, at the at at the turn of the century and on for the first you know sixty years of the twentieth century, a lot of art made by the indigenous people of the Northwest Coast was made for sale. Baskets were made for sale. Carved miniature totem poles were made to sale. There was a lot of beadwork, and these pieces were visually. Um, particularly some some of the of the of the model totem poles were not visually as refined and what anyone would call beautiful as some of the others the earlier and the later however what i love about them is what i said earlier they were expressions of resistance they were expressions of cultural endurance they were um they communicated how these people, despite the fact that they were being oppressed and missionaries and a lot of other groups were trying to eradicate their ethnicity, those artworks, which may not be the most beautiful ones, embody so much meaning. So that's kind of what I mean. I, I love them. So I'm sorry, yeah, I can't I, answer that. Which, let me ask you this. Is there is there any art that that you, having read the book, you find particularly interesting? Oh, I like this. I've never had a question asked, you know, directed to me in one of these, and it's great. I have to be honest. I really like the different canoes. I I just got lost. There's an illustration in the book. Um, I just thought that was, you know, incredible. Sort of the practical plus. The aesthetic, all yeah. in one, aesthetic all in one. I thought that was amazing, actually. They the are amazing. They are amazing. And those canoes are made of a single, a single cedar tree that is dug out and then decorated. Um, and the paintings on them are, are phenomenal and very beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And having spent some time in Ontario, I do remember... Um, uh, a community where they were building the, in that way from a tree, one canoe. And maybe that was a connection in my mind. I, I just thought ah. that was something. And I think a, a theme in the book is definitely valuing everything equally. And your comments about tour start support that because sometimes tour start is dismissed or transportation yes. design. We could call canoes, um, <laughs> Which maybe right brings me to a question um, about the some of the two dimensional work so famous right from this area. You have a really interesting section about this. Will you talk a little bit about the visual? Was it visual communication, or is that the right term for some of the two dimensional imagery in some among some of the group's art? Well. Um, in the northern area, in, in southeast Alaska and northern British Columbia, the two-dimensional work, we're talking now about um, customary work, uh, which dates back to the pre-contact time. The two-dimensional work is extremely refined, and there are um, canons that, 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 that um inform the placement of different artistic elements, formal elements that together make a rather abstracted image of a being um, in a flat surface. 
And this kind of two-dimensional art has been has been called the epitome, not only of Northwest Coast art, but of Native American art in general. Now, as a Northwest Coast specialist, I agree. But some of my colleagues who specialize in the other areas of Northwest Coast, uh, other areas of Native American art, would 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 challenge that. But certainly, um, it's beautiful. It's 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 beautiful for anybody to look at. It, it, they're 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 very um, profoundly culturally important. But the other thing about those works is that they're beautiful no matter whether you know nothing about them. Yes, very much so. And even our some desire to interpret is maybe not the not necessary, right? <laughs> I guess we're kind of trained to want to see a symbol. And um, I, I think that section of the book is really, it's just really enlightening. Um, maybe well, we could. Yeah, please. That's interesting because very quickly, um, totem poles. When you see a totem, when when a lot of people look at totem poles, they say, "Oh, that's a bear, and that's a raven, and that's a wolf," because there are certain um, designation of visual designations, iconographic images, which identify different animals. These animals are a crest of the family. The, the family's history and status is embodied in those animals. People very often. People look at totem poles and they oh, well, that's what that is. And they think they've understood it. Now, simply identifying what, a, what an animal is means absolutely nothing. The totem pole and, and the other art embody all kinds of cultural beliefs. And you don't understand something just by saying it's this or it's that or it's something else. So I, I think that that's important. I, and you're, you're, making me think of another um, point that you make in the book that also the context of the totem poles undergoes a significant shift, at least one, right? Where um, a totem pole, which we might want to so-called, you know, decode, which is very <laughs> limited, right? Right. That can right. be, right? Um, like we're going to be quizzed on it or something. And then, but I thought that was fascinating where there was a change, totem poles, less um, speaking to an individual and more to an entire group whose culture has disappeared. In, oh, in, that, in, that's really interesting because um, totem poles were family emblems of, you know, that they were indications of the family status. I mean, there's a lot more to that. Then what happened is that um, then totem poles stopped being card for the most part during much of the early 20th century. Not always. There were there were totem poles being made. Then when um, there were these great liberation movements in the 60s and 70s, there was a whole revitalization of artwork and totem poles began to flourish again. And some of the poles continue today to be indications of families. But many poles today have much more, again, social significance. They are, reflect culture. I mean, there's one artist who makes poles um, that are, they are 
designators of recovery from alcoholism. And then there are other poles that um, embody feminism. And so uh, the, the poles, very much like the art in general, uh, the, the art of the Northwest Coast has expanded beyond the y- units in which the group lives and into the whole, they become globalized. Yes, and I think that's what makes for, I think earlier I said a very 20th, 21st century text here. So I think that's really important that there's, um, there's this life that keeps moving with this, these art, this art and the time of production. And now I'd like to ask you um, about display because the book has a, yet another powerful theme about when anthropologists and natural history museums were sort of controlling the display. And now we get to the last chapters, you know, we've got public art um, museums. Do you see positive trends toward display of North uh, West Coast art? Oh, absolutely. That's a great question because in the past, um, it displays presented native people as the other and did show art and said, this is quote unquote traditional. And it, most of it ignored anything that happened after the golden age, which ended about 1880, depending, it would take 20 years in either direction. Nowadays, the artists again, are you right, they expand beyond, well, first of all, they're they're not found in natural history museums for the most part. I mean, there are old collections of natural history museums um, that will, that will, that are great. But now innovative artists are showing at um, the Venice Biennale, for example. And the other wonderful thing about today is that it used to be that, uh, this is again back to the natural history museums, it was a white artist, a a white expert, quote unquote, who determined what was going to happen in the show, what the theme was, what the message was, and the white expert just did an exhibit and didn't really consult the people whose art he was being and it's usually he, um, was exhibiting. Nowadays, you cannot do that. No museum can do an exhibit of any indigenous group without the serious involvement of the people themselves whose traditions are being exhibited. So, And this is very important to promote the indigenous voice. What does this art mean to people who made it? What message do they want, what they would call strangers to their society? Um, What message do they want to communicate? That is the paradigmatic change of museum exhibits in in the late 20th and certainly into the 21st century. 
And it couldn't be more wonderful because the exhibits are so much more interesting. Which is not to say that classical scholarship is has been abandoned because it hasn't. Um, it's very important to know what happened in the past and to um, have different voices express um, their their uh, perspectives on the art, but the involvement of the people themselves is indispensable and central to any exhibit today. What a necessary change. Re- when readers uh, read your book, the trajectory, you know, to get from where we were to where we are now um, with what you just said it, regarding display, it's profound. Isn't um, it though? It's amazing. Yes. It's totally amazing. Mm-hmm. It really is. And it, I hope that it encourages people to get into the museum, you know, world and even museum, get into museum careers and scholarship with these newer approaches and ideas. And I, yes. I think my, I, we just need new voices. And I think the book really could be a, a starting point for someone to say, I want to research this material, I want to work with this material because I see there's this big story. There's much more yes. than what I might have learned yes. many years ago. Um, oh, absolutely. I, yes. No, absolutely. I think that your 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 summary of that is perfect. Absolutely perfect. I, Aldona, I'm wondering, as we sort of wrap up our time, and I, I don't want to leave you, is do you have another project in the works? What's your next project, if you can share with us? Oh, oh yes. It's, I was so fascinated by the last chapter of, of the book uh, because I, I fell in love with the art being made today. And I have to tell you, I was in the past more of a historical student of Northwest Coast art. And I wrote my dissertation and my first book was on the art of the clinket. And this was in the 70s that I wrote my dissertation. So we're talking about a very long time ago. And so, and, and I live in Alaska and the clinket live in Alaska in Southeast Alaska. And so I said, I think it would be great to do a book solely on the contemporary art of the Clinket, art by living artists or artists who have recently, you know, who have departed relatively recently. And I began to do this and I realized, you know, I am, I am not... (laughs) I'm not a scholar who is up on all the latest new information, new perspectives, new theories on indigenous art, because, you know, I, I just, I'm too old for that. I don't do that anymore. And, and it, it, and it's not part of my essence, whereas younger scholars have that. And so I decided that the way to make this book the best would be to invite a young, brilliant art historian who just got his PhD by the name of Christopher Green to co-author the book with me. And so we can have 
my more traditional, sorry about that word, um, you know, more historically oriented perspective on the art that's being made today. And he knows the artists very, very well. And he knows how to approach contemporary Native art in a way that I can't. So he and I are collaborating. But the other thing that we knew is that we cannot write a book without the collaboration of a Clinket. And there is an incredible writer poet by the name of Ishmael Hope, who is Clinket. And he uh, is a, uh, an indigenous scholar. He is, he's, he's young, but he speaks the language. He is devoted to the history and the presence of Clinket cultural vitality. So we invited him to co-author the book too. So this is a, a project that I, I think is really exciting because it involves three different voices from different cultures, different generations. And so that is, that is my next project and I'm, I'm immersed in it and it's fascinating. Wow, that's all I can say. <clears throat> I, the collaboration I did this, I think, I hope that very soon you're back on our podcast talking about this project. What a, um, <laughs> yes, what an ambitious and yet needs to be done type of work, right? Oh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, right. Aldana, I want to thank you so much for your time today. I want to tell everyone, I, I think if you've listened to the interview, you understand that the book, this book is significant and it will change your thinking and open some mental doors. And um, I just, again, I want to thank you for your time today. Well, I thank you so much for inviting me and thank you so much for your kind words about the book itself. I mean, it's, it's not my book. It's the book of all the artists who for centuries and centuries have produced amazing creations. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been well a pleasure. Said. Thank you, Aldona. <laughs>